0: Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 17:1 to27. When Abram was 90 years old and uh, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am God Almighty. walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly." You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant and god said to abraham as for sarah your wife you shall not call her name sarai but sarah shall be her name i will bless her and moreover i will give you a son by her i will bless her and she shall become nations kings of peoples shall come from her then abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is God's Word.
1: Thanks, Tiff, for reading scripture for us. And a very good morning to all of you, and a happy birthday to Ollie. Thank you for serving us on your birthday Uh, I'm glad to be with you all this morning. Uh, I was ill earlier this week and I wasn't so sure if I could make it for services this weekend, but praise God that uh, He's shown mercy and I can be with you all in person. Uh, Let's pray together as we come to the Word together. Let's all pray. Dear Father, we thank You indeed that You have spoken. And Father, we pray that You would humble our hearts before You, open our ears and hearts that we might receive from You, Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God who reveals truth to us that we might know you, that we might trust you, that we might walk in your ways before you. So, Father, bless us, we pray. Help us to see more clearly your faithfulness and your grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. Turn our hearts to him afresh. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I wonder if you look back on your life, uh, do you have any regrets? I, I put it to us that we all have Regrets, maybe something whether it's for things that we have done that we ought not to have done or for things that we should have done but have left undone. You know, As we look back on all these things in our lives, you know, some of us may be wondering if we have or maybe we have somehow missed God's plan for our lives. You know, have our decisions or actions, perhaps our mistakes in the past pushed us so far off course that there is no way back. You know, is there no hope of a new beginning, of a return? You know, Must we now settle for second best? You know, make do with what we have left. You know, settle for plan B, or plan C, or even plan D. You know, Abraham may have been wondering about this in this chapter in Genesis 17. Uh, Just a quick recap of what's gone on so far. In Genesis 15, God cut a covenant with Abram, assuring him of his promises to give Abram a people, a place, and to bless him. But after waiting for about 10 years, Abram and his wife Sarai had grown impatient and anxious. Where was the son whom God had promised them? Why were they still childless after all these years? And as we heard from Genesis 16 last week, we heard uh, in Tian Chai's sermon, uh, Abram and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands, to engineer the birth of a son. And that involved a plan, and this plan meant Sarah giving her servant Hagar to Abram for a wife, and then for Abram to have a child through Hagar. And sure enough, Hagar conceived and gave birth to a son, Ishmael. So in that account, uh, it says Abraham listened to the voice of his wife, but neither he nor Sarai listened to God. Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born, and since then, 13 years have passed and Ishmael is now a youth. Abraham is 99 years old and Sarai 90, and she is still barren after all these years. I think we can understand if Abraham and Sarah may have given up hope of ever having a child of their own. Maybe they think, well, you know, we've kind of missed that plan. Now we need to settle on Ishmael. You know, what's more, in these 13 years, God hasn't said anything to Abraham. At least we don't have a record of God saying anything to Abraham since Ishmael's birth, 13 years where God has been silent. Perhaps God's promise of an offspring to Abraham will be fulfilled by Ishmael after all. Maybe Abraham would have to settle for this, quote, second best option. And so we get to Genesis 17, and God again speaks after this long interval. He speaks to Abraham in Genesis 17, and although Abraham hasn't always been perfectly faithful, God confirms his covenant. Again, to Abraham and renews his promises. I think this is a wonderfully encouraging chapter to us, beloved. We can take heart. This chapter reveals God's persevering grace and his faithfulness to his people, even though we may be faithless. But our God remains faithful and he will not fail to work out his plan for his people according to his timing, according to his purposes, for our good, and for his glory. There is no plan B with God. He will work out his purposes as he wills. So, two points as we think about our chapter today. Number one, God guarantees his covenant promises. And number two, God calls us to trust and obey him. Just two big points today. So, number one, God guarantees his covenant promises. Looking at two, pa- two parts of this chapter, one to eight. And then verses 15 to 22. So our chapter begins by giving us the, the timing of the events of this, of this chapter. In verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. So about 25 years have passed since God first made His promises to Abram in Genesis 12. Think about it. A quarter of a century has passed. That is a long, long time to wait for the fulfillment of promises. But thankfully, God's promises, unlike things like university degrees, do not lose their validity. Abraham's journey of faith teaches us to wait patiently on God, who will keep His Word in His time. His timing might not always be our timing, but we can trust Him to keep His Word, even if the wait seems long. No, beloved, does God seem slow in answering your prayers? You know, take heart. Don't be discouraged. It doesn't mean that God is indifferent or that He has somehow forgotten us. God is never late. And indeed, He leads us into seasons of waiting, often, uh, to grow us in patience and faith. God brings us into those seasons where we wait on Him to teach us what it means to rest in Him, to teach us humble submission so that we say to Him, not my will, but yours be done. Not my timing, but yours be done. You know, I was so encouraged by Joanna's testimony. We all heard, or many of us heard Joanna's testimony in the sermon last week in that little video clip. Uh, What an encouragement to hear how she, God grew Joanna in the faith. You know, she, he didn't just give her what she wanted, but, but He helped her to trust Him. He helped her to be patient. He helped her to realize that His plans and purposes for her are much bigger than, what, than simply what she wants from God. And I think that's how God works in our lives as well. He doesn't simply give us what we want, but He changes us so that we trust Him and we wait on Him even if in the end, He doesn't always give us what we want in the way that we want, according to our timing. And beloved, we can be confident about God because of who He is. Right? God says to Abraham in verse 1, I am God Almighty, you know, El Shaddai, that name, reminding Abraham of his person and power. You know, In Genesis, that name, El Shaddai, uh, is often associated with God's promises, particularly how He's able to make the barren fertile and to fulfill His promise to raise up offspring for Abraham. You know, for example, in Genesis 35, God again uses that name. And He says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And He says this to Jacob. And kings shall come from your own body. So that name is a, a tangible reminder that this God who makes promises is Almighty and He's able To keep his word to us. So years may have passed, but God hasn't forgotten his word to Abram, and he reiterates his promises to Abram here in Genesis 17. God will greatly multiply Abram's descendants, verse 2. But there's more than that in this chapter. God, who's this God, who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, he doesn't simply repeat past promises, He expands on them. You know, God had promised to make Abraham a great nation, with offspring as countless as the dust of the earth and as many as the stars in the sky. Now, God enlarges the promises. Look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, not only will God make Abraham into a great nation, a great many nations will come from him. And what's more, God says, kings shall come from you. Verse 6, Abram's offspring will be a king who rules over the nations. It's a promise of how one of Abraham's descendants will reign. Later on, Jacob's blessing of his son Judah in Genesis 49, right at the end of Genesis, picks up on this aspect of God's promise. Some of you may know this promise. When Jacob speaks to Judah, his fourth son, he says to Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him and to him, uh, that is uh, an offspring of Judah, Shall be the obedience of the peoples. So a king will come from Abram's line. And God guarantees his promise here in Genesis 17 by changing Abram's name. Right? He says to Abram in verse 5 No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude, you know, father of a people's. Many peoples. God says, because I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You know, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. You know, for, for many, many years, people have called you Abraham. And, you know, maybe Abraham may have thought, wow, this, this is quite ironic. You know, everyone's calling me exalted father, but I have no children. You know, such an ironic name. You know, but God now changes his name to something even greater, right? Not only will you be called father, but you'll be called a father of a multitude of nations. You know, maybe Abraham thought, oh, God, are you kind of rubbing my face in it now? Yeah. No, I think this change of name, is a pledge from God that yes, God will keep his word. So much so that he will change Abraham's name to assure Abraham that yes, I will keep my promise to you and your new name is this constant assurance that you will have that I will keep my word. You know, in the Bible, when God gives someone a new name, it often shows his grace and how he will not fail to accomplish his purposes through, in and through this person. You know, for example, we can think of a famous name change in the New Testament. You know, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, right? Cephas. or Rather, he changes his name to Peter, which means Petra, right? Uh, the rock on which He will build His church. And God changes our name as well. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God gives us a new name in Christ when He adopts us as His beloved children. it, It is His pledge to us that He will be faithful to us, that His purposes for us will not change, and that He will work in and through us to accomplish His plan and purposes. God gives us a new name in Christ. And notice how in this passage in Genesis 17, how God's promises to Abraham echo the language of creation. Now, for example, verse 2, God says to Abraham, I will multiply you greatly. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And he talks about kings, right? The, the, uh, how Abraham's descendants will rule. Compare this with Genesis 1 verse 28 in the original creation mandate given to Adam. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, rule, rule over creation. What's going on here? Well, there's a new creation theme that's going on in Genesis 17. The first Adam, at the beginning of the Bible, was made in God's image to reflect God's glory, to to follow in God's ways and to rule over creation according to what God's, God's Word says. But that first Adam failed. He fell into sin. He turned away from God, rebelled against God. And the curse came upon all of humanity because the first Adam disobeyed. But God has raised up a new and better Adam. God has raised up Abraham to be this new Adam, to redeem and restore his creation. Therefore, God uses very similar language in his promises to Abraham, fruitful, multiply, rule. The curse came upon us because of the first Adam's disobedience, but the obedience of a new and better Adam will bring us blessing and life. You know, another new detail in Genesis 17 is that the covenant is also with Abraham's descendants, right? It won't just end with Abraham, but it will pass on through the generations. Abraham, God says to Abraham in verses 7 to 8, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God Himself will see to it that this everlasting covenant, this eternal covenant, cannot ultimately be broken. Such good news for sinners like us. Because we have fallen short of God's glory, every single one of us. We have turned away from Him. But God promises us an eternal covenant and He graciously invites us to return to Him that we might enjoy this relationship, this restored relationship with God if we turn back to Him. God says through the prophet Isaiah to us, incline your ear and come to me Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. God welcomes us to turn back to Him, and He offers us an eternal covenant relationship that cannot be broken if we would only turn back to Him and find grace and mercy in Him. And this covenant that God makes, this unbreakable, everlasting, eternal covenant, this is our anchor, beloved. This is our anchor amid the storms of life. You know, as Ollie reminded us through the service this morning, more wars and rumors of wars, disease, illness, you know, many things trouble us. But this everlasting covenant is our security. This unbreakable relationship with God. Because God Himself is the heart of this covenant. Right? Notice what he says to Abraham. Right, in, in this covenant, that he establishes with Abraham, he says, I will be God to you. Right? That, that's the point of it. I'll be God to you, and I will be God to your offspring as well. God offers us the blessedness of being our God. He offers, yeah, he offers himself to us as our God, and we can be his people if we share in Abraham's faith. His goal is to save a people for himself to belong to Him, to dwell in His presence, to enjoy the blessing of His rule. God offers us Himself. You know, how will God keep His promises to Abraham? Sarai will give birth to the child of promise. God says of Sarai in verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. So it will not be Ishmael, but this child of promise will come from Abraham and Sarai. God says, I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And God guarantees His promise to Sarai by changing Sarai's name as well, from Sarai to Sarah. So Abraham and Sarah get new names. In Genesis 17, and their new names are a very concrete pledge from God that He will keep His promises to them. And the promise of a son is so amazing that Abraham can hardly believe it. Right, he falls on his face, but this time he laughs to himself. In verse 17, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? You know, is there a hope of new beginnings after all these years? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? No, Abraham, I believe Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, but surely the promise of a biological offspring to two elderly people sounds too good to be true. How is it possible for an elderly couple, one aged 100, almost 100, and one 90 years old, how is it possible that they... Will have a child to call their own. You know, Abraham kind of tries to reason this thing, reason this out with God, right? He says, God, you know, this sounds too good to be true. But look at Ishmael, right? He's already born. Why not simply have Ishmael be the child of the promise? Much easier. Right? That's Abraham's reasoning with God. So he says to God, right, since Ishmael is already born, why not choose him instead? Verse 18, you know, would that Ishmael would live before you. Now, I think we can relate to Abraham here. You know, we too may struggle to truly believe God's promises. You know, we live in a skeptical, cynical age. Right? You know, we are we, we constantly warned that if something is too good to be true, it probably is, right? that we shouldn't, shouldn't be scammed. Right? We're always on scam alert. Right? So perhaps this promise is too good to actually come to pass. We may struggle to believe God's promises. It can seem more plausible for us to live by sight according to what makes sense in the world. And we evaluate our lives based on what we think makes sense in the world. But God emphatically rejects Abraham's counterproposal of Ishmael. He says to Abraham, verse 19, No, right, very clear, no, But Sarah, and then God emphasizes it, your wife, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. What a wonderful reminder in verse 19 that God is God and we are not. Praise God that we don't live life based on what makes sense to us, but we can live our lives based on what God has promised, even if His promises seem so amazing and wonderful, almost too good to be true. We can base our lives on the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness, the truthfulness of His promises. His ways are not our ways. What is impossible with man is not impossible with God. And with Him, all things are possible. You know, this may be the reason why God waited so long until Abraham and Sarah were nearly 190 years old, respectively. Human inability is God's opportunity. God will keep His promises by His grace alone. He he waits until it's very clear That Abraham and Sarah have no ability, no ability whatsoever to fulfill the promises on their own. And God waits to that moment and then God acts to show that it all depends on Him, not on human power, but on God who works by His grace. God will keep His promises by His grace alone, not human effort. God doesn't depend on our contributions, but He's pleased to be gracious to us. You know, God's power is made perfect in our weakness so that all the glory goes to Him. I, I think this is what the author of Hebrews picks up on in Hebrews eleven eleven, where it says, Therefore from one man, Abraham, and then it says, And him as good as dead, as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And for the first time, God mentions the name of the child, Isaac. And when Isaac will be born, God says in verse 21, at this time next year. So after waiting for 25 years, Abraham finally has a sense of the timing of when Isaac will be born, when his son will be born. It's a a wonderful play on words here in this passage, right? Because Isaac sounds like the Hebrew for he laughs, right? Abraham and later on in chapter 18, Sarah laughed with disbelief when they heard that they would have a son in fulfillment of God's promise. So God gives them a son whose name means he laughs. It's such a wonderfully ironic reminder to Abraham and Sarah of God's amazing grace, His faithfulness, and His power to do what is humanly impossible. Every time they call the name of their son, Isaac, you know, it's a reminder that yes, we may have laughed, but God has done what we didn't believe He could do. God has done the impossible, right? Such a constant reminder of God's faith and power. You know, God turns our disbelieving laughter into faith-filled joy. from the disbelieving laughter to the laughter of fulfillment, the joy of fulfillment. and That's what God does for His people. Genesis 17 is a pivotal chapter because God fills out the details of His promises. And one key truth in this chapter is that the covenant will pass from Abraham to Isaac and then on to Isaac's offspring. And one thing to note is that not every one of Abraham's physical descendants will inherit the promises, but only the child of the promise. So although Ishmael will be blessed, you notice how Ishmael does not receive the promises. The promises go to Isaac, not Ishmael. And the story of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament centers on how God graciously preserves his promises, and how God passes on these promises from generation to generation. Hence, the title of this sermon series in Genesis, Genesis, Generations of Grace. The covenant promises pass from Abraham to Isaac, and then from Isaac to his younger son, so not his firstborn, but to his younger son, Jacob, instead of Esau. Then among Jacob's 12 sons, Judah, his fourth son, is singled out as the one from whom a future king will come. And you fast forward, you find this man named David who is from the tribe of Judah, and David receives the covenant promises when he is chosen as God's king, when he's anointed to be king, and God makes a covenant with David that reflects all the covenant promises that God has made with Abraham. And God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. You see how the covenant promises are being passed on from generation to generation to these men as God chooses them. And then we get to the New Testament, and we find that all the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and then to David, they come to rest on one person. It's one person. Jesus, who is the Christ or the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One. and We learn in the New Testament that this Jesus is both son of Abraham as well as son of David. So the story of the Bible really is the story of how God passes on these covenant promises from generation to generation, culminating in Jesus Christ. Therefore Paul says in Galatians 3, now the promises were made to Abraham, the promises, not the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings plural referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring singular, who is Christ. So this is how we're meant to understand the covenant promises that God is making to Abraham here in Genesis 17. These promises find their full fulfilment in one person. In one person. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised offspring. Therefore, if we are to receive these promises from God, we must believe in the one who fulfils God's promises. So how do I know if God has made promises to me? How do I know if these promises are for me? The promises of blessing, the promises of being a part of God's people, the promises of enjoying God's presence and His strengthening grace in my life. How do I know if these promises are for me? Am I being presumptuous to say that these promises are for me? Well, these promises, I'm not being presumptuous only if I trust in Jesus, the one who fulfills these promises. Friend, do you want to be a part of God's people? how, How are you able to be a part of God's people? By receiving the one who has fulfilled these promises, by receiving Christ Himself, by trusting in Him, by resting in Him, finding grace and mercy through Him. Only in Christ can we enjoy the blessing of having God as our God and belonging to Him as his people. You know, it doesn't come through physical descent. Right? That's what I tell my children, my two sons. You know, just because you are, just because your parents are believers, doesn't mean you are. It doesn't pass on to you. It doesn't come through physical descent. It comes through trusting in Jesus, not coming in on the coattails of your parents' faith. I think that's why John says in John's Gospel chapter 1, to all who did receive him, Jesus who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, but of God. So God confirms his promises to Abraham. Let's look at point two. How do we respond to God's promises? God calls us to trust and obey him. So God calls Abraham to trust and obey Him in verse 1 and 2. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, this takes a bit of explanation because this sounds as if God is making His covenant conditional on Abraham, sort of earning it, uh, deserving it by His obedience. Right? Is this what's happening in these two verses? Well, Couple of observations here. God is not cutting another covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. Rather, he is confirming the covenant he previously made in Genesis 15. You know, and, and the word that's used, you know, the word that says made a covenant, that, that, that word is really important in these two chapters. In Genesis 15, when God says that he made a covenant with Abraham, the word made it's actually literally cut, right? It's a technical word, cut, that refers to the time when God inaugurates or He starts, He initiates a new covenant. So God cuts a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. But in Genesis 17, when God says that, you know, that He made a covenant with Abraham, uh, a different word is used. Not cut, but confirm, right? In verses 7, Nine and twenty-one in Genesis seventeen, I, I think the ESV translates it "establish," but I think "confirm" would be a better translation of that word. So in Genesis fifteen, God cut, you know, inaugurates, starts a new covenant with Abraham. In Genesis seventeen, God confirms this covenant that he has already made with Abraham. In Genesis fifteen, God uses a different word in this chapter. So, God isn't saying that He will make a covenant only if Abraham has earned it. He's already made a covenant. He's already cut a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant cutting ritual, remember, God alone passed between the animal pieces, meaning that God Himself will ensure that His covenant promises are kept. So, in that covenant ceremony in Genesis 15, God has already told Abraham, that this covenant does not ultimately depend on you. God himself will keep his promises by his grace. And in Genesis 17, God reminds Abraham that this covenant is God's gracious gift to him, not something that he can earn, but something that God gives to him. Right in verse 2, when God says, that I may make my covenant between me and you, the word make there. Is actually a gift that I may give my covenant to you. Right? So this covenant is a gift to Abraham, not something that he can deserve or earn. But if Abraham is to enjoy the covenant promises, then he must respond with faith and obedience. Alright, let, let me try to illustrate this a bit. You imagine that I promise to give you a million dollars. And the keyword in that statement there is imagine. Imagine that I give you a million dollars and I cut you a check. Right? So it's like a, making a covenant, right? I cut you a check. But to receive the promised gift, you, what, what, you must, what, what must you do? You must cash a check. Right? Otherwise, the check is of no use to you. It's no benefit. It's just a piece of paper. So, Cashing the check shows that you trust my promise and so much so that you are willing to put it into action, right? You go to the bank and you deposit the check and you receive the gift. Now, of course, cashing the check didn't earn you the money, it's a gift. But cashing the check is your response to enjoying the gift. And so it is here in Genesis 17. You know, God offers, He gives Abraham a covenant and He calls Abraham. To receive it. How? By trusting and obeying. That's the response to his covenant. Not to earn it, but to receive it, to enjoy it. So Abraham is to walk before God and be blameless. And to be blameless doesn't mean to be sinless, but rather to be blameless means to walk with integrity and wholeness, not double-minded, but wholeheartedly following God. Basically, God is telling Abraham who you are on the outside to reflect who you are on the inside. That's what it means to be blameless before God. We're not trying to fake it, but we're truly following Him. We're not merely paying God lip service while our hearts are far from Him. Rather, we love Him and we serve Him from the heart. And walking before God means to live in the presence of of God trusting in His promises and depending on His power. When the late pastor theologian R.C. Sproul said, the essence of the Christian life is to live Coram Deo, which is Latin for before the face of God. That's what it means to live as a Christian. That's what it means to live as God's people. We live before the face of God, knowing that we live in His presence. He sees us, He knows us. We live in a way that pleases Him. Now, just as Abraham falls on his face in worship before God, we worship him in humble submission. That's what it means to live and to walk before God. Trusting and obeying God cannot be separated. Now, yes, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but true saving faith will always produce the good fruit of obedience to God. That, that's, a, that's a response God's promises. And we, and we know that, right? If, if you really believe something, it should change the way you live. If it doesn't change the way you live, then perhaps you don't really believe it. Abraham believed God and it changed his life. It transformed him. May it be so for us as well. And in Genesis 17, God calls Abraham, Abraham to obey by being circumcised, right? Verses 9 to 11. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And notice how Abraham immediately obeys. No questions asked. Immediate obedience. And as soon as God finished talking with Abraham, he took Ishmael, his son, and all, right, everyone, all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, verse 23, as God had said to him. So this, this verse emphasizes the obedience of Abraham. Abraham trusted God's promises. God called him to be circumcised and Abraham obeyed. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, covenants have signs and these signs are a tangible reminder of God's faithfulness to His covenant. So in the covenant that God makes with Abraham, the sign is circumcision. Every male eight eight days old and upwards was to be circumcised. Cutting off the flesh of the male reproductive organ was a tangible reminder of God's promise to raise up offspring for Abraham. The fact that it involved an organ of reproduction was, was just a constant reminder that God would be the one who kept, who would keep His promise in this reproductive plan to raise up offspring for Abraham. It was a reminder that natural human ability alone was unable to produce the promised seed. A cut has to be made by God. God must work in order for the promised seed to come. It can't can't come just by natural human generation. And in the Old Testament, circumcision marked Israel out as God's people. To to refuse to be circumcised was to break the covenant, to disobey God. Those who were not cut were cut off from the people of Abraham. So what does this mean for us today? What significance does circumcision have for us today? Do the men need to squirm in their seats As we read this passage, do we need to be physically circumcised to belong to God? Or more broadly, do we need to undergo some sort of physical ritual, religious ritual, in order to come to God and be a part of His people? A couple of things to note in in this passage itself. Notice how in Genesis 17, being physically circumcised doesn't mean that one will inherit God's promises. Notice how Ishmael is circumcised, but he doesn't inherit the promises. They don't come to him. And also, remember how God has already counted Abraham as righteous in Genesis 15 before he was circumcised. So it's clear that circumcision doesn't make one automatically have the promises. Circumcision doesn't make one the true people of God. So what's the point of circumcision? Physical circumcision was a reminder of God's faithfulness to keep His promise of offspring and it was also meant to point to our greater need. What's our greater need? Not physical circumcision, but spiritual circumcision. You know, the cutting away of the foreskin is a picture of how God must remove the flesh the flesh of our old sinful nature, if we are to truly love God and obey Him. You know, how are we able to walk before God and be blameless before Him? How do we love Him from the heart when our hearts are far from Him? God must cut away the flesh of our hearts, change our hearts so that we love Him and follow Him. Because humanity has turned away from God all of us have turned away from God and we are naturally opposed to Him. We are spiritually dead in our sins and our sinful hearts do not want God or have any need for Him. So to truly belong to God as His people, we need new hearts and that's what circumcision points us towards. God must circumcise our hearts and this is why Paul says, Neither physical circumcision nor physical uncircumcision means anything. But what really counts is a new creation. And only God can do this. Conversion is God's work, not ours. In Deuteronomy 30, God says through Moses, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love God the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. How does God circumcise our hearts? Colossians 2 verses 11 to 14 says, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That made without hands simply means that this is something not not human, not that we have done, but God has done it. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus died for sinners like us to bear God's judgment so that we can be forgiven and made right with God if we have faith in Him. Beloved, this is how we can become a part of God's people, not by anything we have done, not by any religious ritual you know you don't become a part of god's people simply by doing things by doing spiritual things or by even coming to church doing all the spiritual disciplines but you become a part of god's people when god works in your heart by changing your heart by giving you a new heart to love him and to follow him and only in christ are we able to have a new heart and this is what we all need we all need regeneration True conversion, and that's something only God can do. If you're not a Christian today, you may be surprised to hear this. Christianity doesn't teach that you can do things to save yourself. Rather, Christianity teaches that we have no ability, no ability whatsoever to save ourselves. And our only hope is to trust in this God who makes us alive together with His Son. So if you're not a believer, I invite you not to do more religious things. I invite you to come to Jesus, to trust in Him, that you might know His power in making you alive by His Spirit. Turn away from your sins. Trust in the only Savior for sinners. He died and rose again to bring us back to God. If you are in Christ, If we are in Christ, then let us walk before God in newness of life. Walk before Him and be blameless. Follow Him. Live for Him. We all have regrets, but in this chapter, God promises a new beginning. Regardless of what we've done or not done, God gives us hope through His gospel. And He makes us new in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that we can be your people, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the regenerating work of Christ and your Spirit. Father, we pray that we would turn to Him we would trust him father we pray that we would know his power in our lives that we would live a new life in christ because he has made us alive freed us from our sins that we might live for him and no longer for ourselves so father we pray that you will work in our hearts plant your word deep in us that we would respond to you with trust and obedience we pray this in jesus name amen